So tonight we're going to be talking about not just the first world war, but the first cosmic war in the heavenlies and what has been a mystery of ages past about this work of God and Satan. And we're going to get more into Satan next week on the origins of Satan and where he came from, what he was doing, how he rebelled against God. But I want to go back even to the point of the war and the rebellion that happened between God and Satan. Now, it's an interesting discussion because seminaries don't teach it. I went to seminary, and there is no discussion. There's two things that seminaries don't talk about, most seminaries, most evangelical seminaries. How to be filled with the Holy Spirit, sort of important. The assumption I came out of was, I guess you can actually be a pastor and not be filled with the Holy Spirit, because it's never taught. And I think most pastors aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. Most believers aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. And secondly, you don't talk about Satan and demons. You don't talk about spiritual warfare. My premise tonight, my thesis tonight, is that the enemy is behind that strategy. That the reason we don't know is because he doesn't want us to know. And the reason he doesn't want us to know is because if you know, you would start walking in greater and greater victory in your Christian life. And so Satan wants to keep you down. Satan wants to keep you depressed. Satan wants to keep you struggling with the same old sins. Satan wants you to get married and get divorced and end up committing suicide. That's his goal. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and, and, he, and he hates you because you're created as a son and a daughter of God. Three reasons. Let me give you three reasons why we study this war. Let me give you three reasons why we study spiritual warfare. Number one. We are in a fight. Folks, we are in a fight. We are in a battle. Number two, we are in a fight that if you don't understand, will destroy your life. If you don't understand the strategies and the schemes of the enemy, you will be destroyed. Now, I don't mean you're physically going to be destroyed. I mean, some people do commit suicide. But I'm not speaking of that because most people don't. But I mean, your destiny is destroyed. The, the, the capabilities and the capacities, the enlargement of your soul, of all that God has for you, can be destroyed. You quit dreaming. You quit having a vision. You think less of yourself, and in the process, you live a subpar Christian life. And then number three, we're in a fight that we absolutely must be equipped for. If you're not equipped for this... By actually studying it, it won't happen. It will not happen. Spiritual warfare is one of those unique aspects of the Christian life that you have to study. You have to become aware of. You have to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to equip you in the months to come if you'll listen and if you're here and you get it and if you miss it, you listen online to it. But as you start to get equipped in it, you're going to have these aha moments. Like the first time I experienced any of this was in Japan. Nobody had taught me. There's no training center for this stuff. I mean, there are, here and there, there's a few places and a few more Pentecostal kind of driven charismatic churches where they teach a little bit on it. But it's very, very rare even there. And so, and so people go through situations with sickness, addictions, besetting sins. And in the process, blaming God that that somehow is God's fault in their life, forgetting that there's an enemy. And he's the God of this age. He's the power over the forces of the earth. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2. That's what he does. 
I don't want that to happen at the road. I want us to be a people equipped and empowered and listen, confident. Confident. I don't want to be the only guy in this church who can cast out some demons. All right? I want every one of you to be equipped. I want every one of you in this room, if you so desire, you have a passion for setting the captives free, you can. God is no respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of passion. God is not a respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of passion. And passion is spelled F-A-I-T-H. Faith. God's giving you fierce faith. If you don't want to use it, if you don't want to walk in it, then just continue to live a subpar Christian life. But if you want to walk in it, watch out. Because God's going to mightily use you. You will see the miraculous happen. I remember the first time we cast out a demon in this young guy. Just, I mean, kind of simple case. Just a seventh degree black belt in karate in Japan. And it took us three hours. But we got those demons out. I wore the demons out. I did not know what I was doing. But I think the demons realized he's not going to leave. He's not going to quit. And I just simply wore them out and they left. And this young man, Yasu, there in Tokyo, Japan, was set free of epilepsy, set free of three or four other things, uh, uh, issues in his life. And as far as I know, he walked in freedom after that. And that's just the stupidity of a southern boy who ate grits in Japan and just wouldn't give up. And so if you have that kind of tenacity, we're going to get trained and equipped in how to do this stuff over the next few months. Here's what the goal of every demon is. Here's the goal of every demon. The goal of every demon coming from Satan is to shame, blame, and confuse by accusation and berating you to the point of despair. Let me read it to you again. The goal of every demon is to create shame, blame and confusion by accusing and berating you to the point of despair the goal of every malevolent spirit is suicide and if you're here tonight and you're struggling with a spirit of suicide please don't leave without us praying over you Ephesians chapter 5 says that one of the purposes of the sons and the daughters of light is that we would shine light into darkness. We would like to shine the light of the gospel and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ into your life and break the power of despair. Shame, blame, berating, and despair, that's all the works of the enemy. That is not from God. And as one who has struggled with all of those I can tell you right now, it is common to all of us. And so you say, well, man, if you only knew what I've been through, if you only knew, Steve, what I'm dealing with tonight, I, we probably know. Because I believe every one of us at some point in our life have probably considered taking our life. We've probably at different times felt like our despair could never be broken. Um, the voices that we're hearing and the scripting that we've heard in our life, the, the images uh, of rape or sexual abuse or molestation or the scripting that came from your parents. A lot of us know that. That's what he does. Don't walk in that shame anymore. Please get prayer tonight. 
get prayer and keep getting it. I mean, I think, that, I think it's another misnomer out there that somehow we can get prayer one time and it's just going to lift. And so it didn't work for me. You, you know, when Jesus was casting out a demon in one case, it says he kept, it, it, it's actually in the Greek, he kept commanding the spirit to leave. That tells me, even with Jesus, they sometimes didn't leave. And so, guys, sometimes you got to line up and quit being a wimp about this and keep getting prayer. Just keep coming and wear them out. Seriously, wear them out. And I'm not talking about name it and claim it or something like that. I'm just saying, and it doesn't mean that you walk in, oh, I've got to get my healing. No, that's not what it's about. It's I got to get more of Jesus in the process. And as we get more of Jesus, he creates and builds up your faith. And in so doing, you, I think most of the time, you gradually get set free. I mean, that's what Cher's talking about. That's why I love her testimony. It didn't happen like that. I mean, we had that one prayer time, but she didn't tell you that she was on a picnic table one time outside Pioneer Elementary School and we're casting out demons for like forever. I was really hungry by the time. I mean, I was like ready to eat, man. And there's another one. Oh, and there's another one? I mean, she didn't tell you that story. So it was, I mean, it took time. It took months with Cher. And there was that crowning moment where God came. And it was exciting to see what he did with her brain and everything. But that was months. I mean, that, was, that, was, that took time. So keep coming. I tell people all the time who, who are dealing with stuff, who come to the road. I say, just keep coming. Just, guys, you can't even, I can't even tell you enough how important it is to be under the teaching of God's word every week. The fellowship of belief. There's power in this room that, that happens no other place. That's absolute truth. And I'll tell you, one of the theories that's out there, because I read about it and I, and I study it, and I know about it as a pastor. You don't need church. Oh, I, you know, we have church out there in Pueblo catching fish. Or I, I, you know, I have church at 11 Mile Canyon. I love all those places. But that ain't church. Church is people coming together. I didn't make this stuff up. Book of Acts, it all started, Acts chapter 2. And prophetically, it began back in Genesis with the Exodus. God brought the body of Israel together, the, the ecclesios, the, the body. And then, and then he created the church. It's his idea. So, so if God didn't need the church, then his spirit would have fell on everybody who's out there in their motorboat and camping all around Palestine on Pentecost. But he didn't. He took 120 worn out, crazy, poor, poverty stricken, fearful people who came together and prayed for 10 days and bam! Spirit of God hit them. It changed the world. And God wants to do that again. And God wants to do that in Colorado Springs. And God wants to do that in the road. And that's what he does. So the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy and to annihilate because you're created in the image of God. So you think, well, I don't know why any spirits would have any problem with me. I'm, I'm just a schmo. Well, let me tell you why. Before you were a schmo, you were created in the image of God. And so whether you like it or not, you're an you're, you're a image of Jesus walking around. A beautiful, beautiful image of Jesus walking around. And when you feel love and when you experience forgiveness and when you experience grace and you extend it to others and you receive it, that's the image of Jesus in you.
Dogs don't, I can tell you, I train dogs. And dogs do not experience forgiveness. They definitely don't experience it for me most of the time when we're working on, you know, holding a point. But, but fish aren't walking and swimming in the grace of God. We're, create, we're unique. Whatever our secular humanists tell us that we're just like, was it, was it Phil Donahue who talked about us just being sort of uh, natural, born, natural, higher level animals is a lie. We are creating the image of God. And we are unique, a unique creation of God. And God's spirit flows through every one of you. And his spirit is upon you. And so Satan hates that. And so as we study, we're going we're gonna to look at the power of God too. And what God can do through you. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. All the great and awesome and powerful things God wants to do through each one of you. You just got to believe it. So part of our study of the word is to create faith in our hearts over the next few weeks and months. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to begin with a story. Um, I like to elk hunt and deer hunt. I haven't deer hunted in a long time because I've been building up preference points. But um, I elk hunt every year. And we use a topo map, a topographical map where we hunt. And if you lay that topographical map on a table like we do often to kind of think through our hunt, it's got these little squiggly lines that represent elevations. And if you're looking at the squiggly lines of a topo map and you see little squiggly lines on the topo map that represent distance and height and hills and valleys, on that particular map, it doesn't look like much. But let me tell you something. When you get to those little squiggly lines in real time, it could be a cliff that's 100 feet down and it's just one little line. On the thing. And then you look. And that one little line. That was really really close to another line. Has a big line. Down at the bottom of it. Because here's then a valley. That's, that's level. And has no more depth to it. It's across there. And then there's another little squiggly line. And it's another 150 feet over there. And you've got to get from this side. To that side. And you plan to get there. In about six minutes. When you're making your plan. And two hours later. Right? Well that's what happens. In a particular verse of scripture. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We're going to read the squiggly lines and then I'm going to explain that there's a massive gap between the two. Most believers are not aware of this and we read it as if the two verses are actually connected in time. Now they're connected on the page, but they're not connected in time. And I will say this at the very outset that there is much discussion over what I'm going to teach tonight. And there's not full agreement in the evangelical community. But, there's, but I'll give you good evidence for it. And, uh, but I will not argue with anybody about it. Because uh, more intelligent minds than mine believe in it. Uh, 
and more intelligent minds than mine don't believe in it. But let me read it to you, and then I'll leave it up to you. Bottom line is that there was a war in the heavenly, so we'll get to that. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period, stop, period. Does everybody have a period there? All right, it's good, good grammar. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, most readers of the Bible would say verse 1 and verse 2 are connected in time. I'm going to challenge that tonight and say there's actually a huge, possibly million year, possibly billion year gap between the two verses. And here's why. The meaning of without form and void from the Greek to using English words would be wasteland, chaos, or wilderness. Let me say that again. The meaning of without form and void is a wasteland, chaos, a wilderness. You cannot find any place in Scripture that shows or exemplifies that God creates chaos. God does the opposite. God takes chaos and brings order. You know what God did to share his mind is that he unscrambled her eggs. He unscrambled her eggs. All right. And so some of you are really got, you got kind of scrambled eggs life. And if you let Jesus have control, he'll bring order to your chaos. God's in the business of taking waste land and turning it into something beautiful. You know, we were up at the top of the parking lot tonight praying and we could see the Chapel Hills Church facility with that cross there against these majestic mountains. God created those majestic mountains. That's what God does. He takes things that are chaotic. He takes things that are wilderness. He takes things that are wasteland and he brings order, beauty, healing, and fertility. God never takes a fertile woman and then makes her barren. God takes a barren woman and he makes her fertile. God doesn't take people who are well and then make them sick. He takes sick people and he makes them well. So it says here that the earth was a wasteland, a chaos, a wilderness. It was without order. Let me explain that when we interpret scripture, you always... You always, let me say, you don't always. The hermeneutic, hermeneutic is interpretation of Scripture. But the, the best way to interpret a hermeneutic of Scripture is with Scripture, not with experience. You understand that? You understand how dangerous it can be if you create your theology just from your experience. So I could talk all till the cows come home about casting out demons out of Yasu, but if I can't base it in Scripture, I'm on flimsy ground, folks. Now, that doesn't mean that just because we can't find guitars in the Bible that we can't have rock music. And that doesn't mean because we don't have cars in the Bible we can't drive cars. I'm talking about the interpretation of Scripture as it relates to truth theologically and spiritually. 
So, so Isaiah 53 is a, a great case in point. You read Isaiah 53, and it's about a suffering servant. Now, the way the rabbis today, the Orthodox Jews, interpret that is that's a picture of Israel. But we now know on this side of the life of Christ that Isaiah 53 is a beautiful, almost perfect, prophetic word about the life and the death of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 53, which was written thousands of years before Jesus came as our Messiah, is a prophetic word about the Messiah. So, so we see Isaiah 53, remember the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah when Philip comes along and he gets saved and baptized. So we interpret Isaiah 53 based on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts later. Does that make sense? So we're interpreting a passage of Scripture based on another passage of Scripture. Another example, the Trinity. There's no place in the Scripture that specifically says the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are of one substance with the Father but three persons. And so people try to wrap their mind around the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's hard to do. But yet, all through the Bible, there's references when you put it all together of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notwithstanding, Jesus saying in his, in his great commission, Go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's no clear, there's nothing that says Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible. But the, the great the great theologues and commentators and pastors and leaders and church fathers in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, because of heresies that were rising up, were able to put together the idea of what they then called the Trinity. And now the Roman church, the Orthodox church, the Protestant church, every evangelical church and Orthodox church, not big O, but smaller Orthodox church, believes in the Trinity. So my point is, you compare Scripture with Scripture. So we, we, we study Genesis as it relates to Revelation. We study Deuteronomy as it relates to Galatians. We study Joshua as it relates to James. And that's why Paul would say to the Corinthians, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so when we read God's Word, men and women, we are looking for spiritual things related to spiritual words that give us spiritual truth. That's the power of God. And so that's why we can trust the Scriptures. So that's why cults get started. Cults get started where one man's interpretation of one particular passage grows into an entire theology and he can't support it with the rest of Scripture. Jehovah's Witnesses is case in point. Mormons is case in point. They have built entire theologies and, and cult groups have built entire uh, uh, fallacies based on the interpretation usually of some charismatic leader that they have that uh, doesn't use all of Scripture in his interpretation. So, why do I say all that? Because I'm going to give you some passages that support what I'm talking about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Stop. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void. New King James Version says, without form and void. The American translation is, the earth was formless. And void. Other translations have it as a waste, waste and void. 
coming from the Hebrew words, and you ought to write this down on the side if you're taking notes, tohu bohu. Tohu bohu means wasteland, wilderness, confusion, a wreck. The French, listen to the French translation. This is just like the French. Topsy-turvy. Anybody of French uh, extraction here? Oh, Pierre, of course. He's even got a name that sounds like it. All right. So, topsy-turvy. In the message, Eugene Peterson, in his translation, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, says this. God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see, period. Then he said this. The earth was a soup of nothingness. A bottomless emptiness and an inky blackness. So comparing the Bible with the Bible, listen to this, from Isaiah, I didn't write the reference down here, I think it's Isaiah 45, 8 or 18 says, for thus says the Lord, listen to this, really important, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, now listen up, and I've underlined this, and did not create it a waste place. He did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. And that's the same word, tohu bohu, used in Genesis 1-2. He did not create the earth, tohu bohu. He did not create a chaos, Genesis 1-2. The Revised Standard Version actually says this, he did not create it a chaos. That's their translation of it. So there is a great gap. That's my premise tonight. There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And we don't know how many years it is. It could have been like this. It could be millions of years. It could be billions of years. So, so here's a translation that's actually an accurate translation. You could say this. That God's earth, let me go back, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, period, then verse 2, and it became, the earth became a void and without form. It became a wasteland. So something happened. Church, something happened between verses 1 and 2. Thomas Chalmers, a divinity professor at the University of Edinburgh, greatly admired, one of the great theologues of England in the uh, 1700s, who wrote one of the most famous called the Bridgewater Treatises Works, a series by some of the best British scientists and clerics devoted to natural theology and the proof of God's design in creation, wrote this. My own opinion, as published in 1814 is that it, Genesis 1-1, forms no part of the first day of the seven days of creation, but refers to a period of indefinite antiquity when God created the worlds out of nothing. Interesting. Nelson Bible, the Nelson Study Bible, published in 1997, says this in its study Bible in, re, in relation to Genesis 1, 
and 1 and 2. Quote, here it means that God renewed what was in a chaotic state. God changed chaos into cosmos, disorder into order, emptiness into fullness. The two words, without form and void, express one concept, chaos. The earth had been reduced to this state. It was not the way God created it. Author Constance, a Canadian physiologist with a doctorate in anthropology and author of the well-known Doorway Paper series on creation and Christian evidences, wrote a privately published book, Without Form and Void, in 1970, arguing the same theory. Charles Ryrie, who is professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, had obtained his doctorate from the University of Edinburgh, author of the famous Ryrie Study Bible, in his book, You Mean the Bible Teaches That, and that, that's a great title, that's in 1974, You Mean the Bible Teaches That, admits that Genesis 1, 1 and 2, quote, may cover an interminably long period of time. Now jot this down, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. Quite interesting. Jeremiah... Like all of the, the great prophetic men of the Old Testament would see things and would write things and would prophesy things not having a clue in many cases what it was they were writing down or what the meaning was. I'm sure that Isaiah had no idea that, I, that well, it wasn't in chapter and verse back then, but that, you know, anyway, Isaiah. What do you think about chapter 53? And he goes, what are you talking about, chapter 53? But, you know, if we meet Isaiah someday, we can say, hey, remember the part about the suffering journey? Oh, yeah. That was like two-thirds of the way through my letter. And everything. Yeah, yeah, okay, that part. Who's that about? Well, that's about Jesus. Did you know it at the time? He said, no, I didn't know it at the time. God just gave me a revelation. I wrote it down. I was inspired by God. And so I think that's a case here of Jeremiah. He doesn't even know what he's saying, but here's what he's saying. He, he's in the first person, God speaking through the prophet, and he says this, I beheld the earth. And indeed, it was without form and void. Bohu. Tohu bohu. And the heavens, they had no light. Remember, light hadn't been created yet. Because we haven't even gotten to the seven days. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they tremble. So there's mountains. And all the hills moved back and forth. Some translations say like a wave. I beheld, indeed, there was no man, because man hadn't been created yet. With all the birds in the heavens... They, hadn't been, they, they weren't created yet. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord. Listen, by his fierce anger. Could that be a prophetic picture of a great battle? Of a great battle that took place in times immemorial, in antiquity. Sounds like a prophetic description of, of this chaos being created on the face of the earth. Donald Gray Barnhouse, which I would encourage you if you're interested in getting his book, The Invisible War, as you can see, mine's all torn up. Um, this is a book I got years and years ago, probably 25 years ago, read this. And I, I probably read it, I probably read it like five times. And uh, The Invisible War by Donald Gray Barnhouse. The other book I'd recommend is The, uh, uh, the Adversary by Mark Bubeck. And overcoming the adversary. This one's very theological. And this one's very practical. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Famous theologian and pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. In Philadelphia. 
and author of The Invisible War, writes about this passage. Here's what he says. Quote, That something tremendous and terrible happened to the first perfect creation is certain. We know that later the earth, which had become waste and empty, was reformed and refashioned in the six days and peopled by the newly created beings. Adam and his wife... And that God renewed and restored the earth, of which it is stated six times that God saw that it was good. We have every right to argue from analogy that the original creation long before Adam's remade world was cursed because of earlier sin fell into chaos because of the righteous judgment of God upon some outbreak or rebellion. Somewhere back... Before the chaos of the second verse of Genesis 1, there was a great tragedy and a terrible catastrophe. So we don't know. And I'm not advocating evolution at all. Don't hear me say that. Because some have taken that to mean you're advocating evolution because you're saying it could be millions and billions of years as the age of the earth. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, I mean, it could have been it could have been in five minutes that this war took place between verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2. I'm not saying that. Some believe, in that as far as a natural theology of creation, would say that that's why we have the sediments. I believe that's from the flood, you guys. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not advocating it. Matter of fact, I would never advocate evolution because I'm not saying there was even anything created, any created beings in that uh, first creation. It could have just been the physical earth, and and I don't know what that would have constituted. Because evolution, in my opinion, slaps right dab in the face of Creator God. But we're not going to go there right now. Here's what we are saying. That something happened, and God's about to show up. Starting in verse 2, he's beginning what we believe is a seven-day, and I believe, I'm a, I'm a young earth guy, I believe in seven literal days. Call me a fool. But I like to say to people, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? <laughs> you know, We're all a fool for something, right? Because we don't have all the facts. We weren't there. I choose to believe God's word that eons and that days, literally we're 24-hour days, Scriptures say, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So men and women, God at his very character and his heart core is a God who shines light into darkness and then makes darkness light. He shines order into chaos and makes chaos work right. He lines up what is scrambled and he brings healing and he brings power and he brings a restored creation. That's what Jesus does. Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to heal the broken hearted. Cher is sharing her testimony and giving glory to God tonight some many years later. We're talking about 
over 20 years ago, began a process of her laying in the mud of her car, crying out to God, and God showed up, and he took this broken, fragile woman, and he, and he ordered her life. That's what God does. The first part is what demons do. The second part is what God does. And so as we talk about this tonight, I'm talking about the very character of God and how he works. So now turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is what I believe happened between verse 1 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 12 in time immemorial could have been billions of years ago, might have been millions of years ago, might have been 11,000 years ago. But we know this happened because John in his revelation on the island of Patmos had this vision. And he gives us, again, like, like Jeremiah with his word, Isaiah with his word, and now John in Revelation giving us his word, he says this, And war broke out in heaven, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So somewhere in time memorial, there was a war in the heavenlies. And we're going to talk about this way more next week. I'm going to conclude really soon, I promise. But, but we're going to talk about how this all happened next week on the origins of Satan, Lucifer, light bearer is what his name means. And how he took with him angels from heaven who rebelled and became demons to the earth. He cast him to the earth. So something happened. And then we're going to look at Isaiah. You can go ahead and look at it, you know, later. But Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are key to this. But the, the, the great I wills. There was, there was sin, there was pride that welled up in the heart of Lucifer, light bearer. He rebelled against God. A war broke out in heaven. And my thesis is that could be, I'm not going to stake my life on it, but it could be because we don't have enough information that between verses 1 and 2 is where the battle took place. Because we do know this, that when, when Adam and Eve were created and God put them in the, in the uh, garden, there's no reference, Genesis 1, uh, starting at verse 2 onward of anything being bad. It's always, it was good, it was good, it was six times, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then suddenly this serpent comes along. Where did he come from? Well, it, was, it had to been something beforehand that occurred that then brought him into the picture. He tempted Eve, and, uh, and sin was introduced into the world. So, so, so if your kids ever ask you, where did sin begin? Sin began in Satan. Sin didn't begin in Eve. That's been one of the great curses on uh, femininity. Is this, oh, it's, you know, it all started with a woman. No, it all started with Satan. And it began in times immemorial. A war broke out in heaven. He was cast to the earth. My premise is that God created the heavens and the earth. So he had created it, and, uh, and he created it. And then when this rebellion occurred, chaos was created. That's all Satan can do. You invite Satan into your life, he will create chaos. Promise. You want chaos in your life? Invite Satan in. Hey, Satan, come and check me out. I know people have done that when they're high on drugs. 
They want to they mess with power. They feel like, well, he's powerful. God's not doing so good these days because I've been to church and there's no power there. And I have to say, yeah, about 99% of churches, there's no power there. Okay, I understand that. Well, I want power. So they invite a demon into their life. They invite Satan into their life. I don't think Satan has any, I don't think Satan's interested in any of us, by the way. He's got bigger fish to fry, but he's got demons. He's got these little emissaries. He's got these, these warriors for him. And they come in and they steal, kill, destroy, rip off, tear apart, and commit people to fall into suicide. There are broken bodies all over this city. There's broken marriages all over this city. There's broken lives all over this city because the enemy has complete access through TV, radio, music, um, relationships, um, dope, pot, um, you name it. And, and, and the person just doesn't even have a clue. And, they're, and they're, so it's like, it's like a medical doctor's um, um, greatest sales pitch. Because, because what is it? I mean, I'm watching TV sometimes, and every commercial is about another drug you can take for depression or arthritis or this. And I love when they tell you the side effects. <laughs> and so if demons could come and say, well, here's the side effects. Look, I'll give you a good time with her for 15 minutes. Yeah. Here's the side effects. Yeah, I'll get you high. You'll feel great for two hours, man. You won't even know where you're at. It's just kind of, oh, euphoria. And here's the side effects. So the enemy doesn't give you the label. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so something happened in times immemorial. Satan's cast to the earth. He still controls the earth. This is still his place. Uh, 2 Corinthians says, the minds, the God of this age has blinded. The God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the things of the gospel, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so people are blinded by the God of this age. Uh, Ephesians 2, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if he's not Lord of your life, he's not your Savior, if you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, it could be that you are under the prince of the power of the air. Paul says the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience. You can get set free tonight. Here's what Ephesians 2 says. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves, listen, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm telling you, folks, you are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. And if you don't believe it, let us pray for you tonight. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, I want our, our shepherds to be up there near the table. I want our stewards to be up there near the table. And, uh, and I want us to pray. If you want prayer, please get prayer. We're going to go into worship right now. Heath, we're going to go into worship right now. And uh, as the team comes up, we got the tables, our communion on both sides here. And as you take communion, if you're a believer, take communion. It says it heals you. There's something healing about communion. Now, it doesn't take the place of the laying on of hands, but there's something about communion that's powerful about the fellowship of the saints. If you're not a believer or you're not sure you're a believer, don't take communion. Don't take communion because it's not for you. You're not a believer yet. But get saved. Our, our shepherds are going to be on both sides here. I want couples, shepherds, couples, and stewards, couples, if, you're, if your spouse is in here, and go up to them and say, would you pray for me right now? I need healing. Would you pray for me? I'm struggling with, with bad thoughts, thoughts of despair and discouragement. Maybe even taking my own life. Would you pray for me tonight? We'll pray for you. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, I mean really given your heart to Christ. You might know church. I'm not talking about churchianity. I'm not talking about religion. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Okay, so going to church, that doesn't do anything except give you some information and experience the power. But if you've never fully repented of your sin and surrendered to Christ, do it tonight. All right? It's the right thing to do. Calvin's motto, John Calvin's motto in the Great Reformation in Geneva was this. I say it in, in uh, Latin. Post tenebrous lux. Post tenebrous lux. After darkness light. After darkness light. Post tenebrous lux. After darkness light. Come to Christ tonight. Let us pray for you. If there's a dark area of your heart, come, let us pray. If there's lust in your heart and you just have been battling this thing and you'd let us pray for you, we'd count it a privilege. Every guy in this room struggles with lust sometimes. You're struggling with greed. You're struggling with gossip. You're struggling with envy. You got a drug addiction. You got an issue. Let us pray for you. If you do not do that, I'm telling you, the enemy will get the upper hand. He will because his strategies are really sneaky and they're really clever. But greater is Christ who's in you than the powers of the air around you. Let's stand.